You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and zero trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their sassy journey, visit netskope.com. Novel malware operates in Southeast Asia. Data theft extortion is on the rise. Key findings of Cisco's Cybersecurity Readiness Index. iPhones are no longer welcome in the Kremlin. Russian cyber auxiliaries and privateers devote increased attention to the healthcare sector. Johannes Ulrich from the Sands Technology Institute tracks the scams following the failure of Silicon Valley Bank. Our guest is Chris Ng from Barricode with a look at application security. And Breach Forums seems to be under new management. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, March 21st, 2023. Developers of the Siestagraph malware family, REF2924, have been observed shifting their focus from data theft to persistent access, Elastic reported yesterday. A new executable, WMDTC.exe, is written in C-sharp and referred to as NapListener. The malware is said to evade network-based forms of detection, NapListener is capable of processing incoming internet requests, reading submitted data, decoding data from Base64 format, and executing it in memory. Researchers shared that the REF2924 attacker is reliant on code from open sources and public repositories. The researchers share the abilities of the found sample, saying that this unique malware sample contains a C-sharp class called MSEXG Health D that consists of three methods, main, set resp header, and listener. This class establishes an HTTP request listener that can process incoming requests from the Internet and respond accordingly by filtering malware commands and transparently passing along legitimate web traffic. Elastic has been tracking this threat actor and has earlier reported that the combination of victimology, members of the Southeast Asian Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, and the absence of any obvious monetary motive, suggests that the motive is probably collection of diplomatic intelligence. Palo Alto Network's Unit 42 has published its 2023 ransomware threat report, finding that threat actors have significantly escalated their extortion tactics. By late 2022, threat actors were conducting data theft in 70% of ransomware attacks, compared to 40% in 2021. 
Additionally, the use of harassment as an extortion tactic rose from less than 1% in 2021 to 20% in 2022. Unit 42 writes, Threat actors call and leave voicemails for corporate executive leaders and other employees, send emails to personnel, or disclose victims' identities on a leak site or social media. The purpose of these activities is to make it uncomfortable for an organization to avoid responding to the threat actors and their demands. Manufacturing organizations, particularly in the U.S., were the most frequent targets for extortion attacks last year. The researchers think much of this shift in the attacker's preference is driven by manufacturers' observed tendency to keep older legacy software in operation. Manufacturers' particular reluctance to tolerate downtime, which is entirely understandable from a business perspective, also in some cases can give attackers additional leverage. Cisco released their Cybersecurity Readiness Index today, and it sheds light on organizations' ability to safeguard against cyber threats. The results suggest that an alarming number of companies are not at a strong enough level of protection against threats posited in cybersecurity today. The research found that only 15% of global organizations have what is defined as a mature level of readiness, meaning that they have implementations in place that are strong enough to defend against current cyber threats. 82% of the survey's respondents report expectations of a cybersecurity incident against their company in the next one to two years. Those surveyed also report bearing high costs due to underpreparedness, with 41% of organizations that reported an incident in the last year disclosing costs of at least half a million dollars. Some good that comes from this somewhat troubling report is that a majority of respondents, 86%, shared intentions to increase security budgets by at least 10% over the coming year. Cisco researchers also shared that reduced complexity and higher implementation of integrated platforms will lead to more successful and effective security resilience and preparedness. It is also important for company leadership to take stock of both strengths and weaknesses within their defenses and develop a plan to build around the weaknesses. Citing reports in the Russian media outlet Kommersant, the register says that members of President Putin's staff have been told to get rid of their iPhones, replacing them with Android devices or with phones using either Chinese operating systems or Russia's homegrown Aurora. The Daily Star says that word around Moscow is that Apple products are particularly susceptible to monitoring by American intelligence services. It's a security measure, not economic retaliation against a company based in an unfriendly country, Russian commenters say. Users have been told that by the end of the month, they should either toss their iPhones or give them to the kids. A review in SC Media tracks the recent trend on the part of Russophone cyber threat actors to attack the healthcare sector in countries unsympathetic to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Prominent among the groups making the attacks are two criminal ransomware gangs, Lockbit and Black Basta, this latter generally regarded as a rebranding of the nominally defunct Conti, and the hacktivist auxiliary Killnet. CISA and the FBI urge threatened organizations to prioritize patch management or network segmentation of known exploited vulnerabilities in addition to training users how to recognize and report phishing attacks 
and enforcing phishing-resistant multi-factor authentication. It's good advice at any time and to anyone, but healthcare organizations might take special interest in it right now. And finally, following the arrest of alleged breach forum's proprietor Pompom Purin, another figure has stepped up to claim ownership of the criminal forum, the record reports. The forum, well known as a C2C market where stolen data was traded, is presently still inaccessible, but one Baphomet says he'll be bringing it back online soon, saying, Although I had already suspected it to be the case, it's now been confirmed that Palm has been arrested. I think it's safe to assume he won't be coming back, so I'll be taking ownership of the forum. I have most, if not all, the access necessary to protect BF infrastructure and users. If Mr. Baphomet is as good as his word, and whom can you trust if you can't trust someone with a demonological hacker name, Breach Forums will return shortly, staged in new infrastructure. When Mr. Baphomet reopens the shop, good hunting, FBI. Coming up after the break, Johannes Ulrich from the Sands Technology Institute tracks the scams following the failure of Silicon Valley Bank. Our guest is Chris Ng from Veracode with a look at application security. Stay with us. In the complex world of enterprise identity, securing legacy web apps at scale can be daunting. Strata Identity makes it simple. With Strata, you can effortlessly integrate non-standard apps with any identity service, like MFA or SSO, with zero coding and zero hassle. Designed by identity architects for identity architects, Strata works with every vendor, standard and app architecture. This means your apps can now speak modern protocols and integrate seamlessly with your chosen identity services. From securing on-prem web apps to migrating away from outdated identity providers or consolidating them, Strata helps you keep your complex access policies as you modernize your identity infrastructure and get rid of technical debt. Join leading organizations like 3M, Dallas County, and CIBC in securing your apps with Strata. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity security priorities, and receive a complimentary pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. And now, a word from our sponsor, Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks, and optimizing operational efficiency. With Sixth Sense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals. Confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. 
To learn why enterprises choose SixthSense, visit SixthSense.com. Security firm Vericode recently released their 2023 State of Security Software Report, focusing this year on flaw introduction and what it means for an application's life cycle when flaws are introduced. Chris Ng is Chief Research Officer at Vericode. This time, uh, we decided to look at um, a couple different angles. We try to uh, you know, not report on the same thing every time, but um, in the past, we've looked a lot at uh, flaw accumulation, like what is the security debt that accumulates in an application over time. And this time, we took a slightly different angle, and we looked at flaw arrival. Um, hmm. what, is, um, what are the patterns associated with when flaws um, appear in applications, which is slightly different. And so one of the surprises for us was that when you look at applications, um, you know, you're always adding new code, you're adding new features, right? Any, any website out there, any application is always growing, very rarely shrinking. And so despite the fact that code bases are growing at, on average, about 40% a year, we don't see the same rate of flaw introduction, um, at that, that steady rate of, you know, that mirrors that 40%. Instead, what we see is, you know, at the beginning, you discover some, some flaws. About 30% of applications have um, some flaws, which may have accumulated up to the point where they you know, did their first scan. But then over the next year, year and a half, that flaw arrival rate actually decreases. Um, developers introduce fewer flaws, not zero, but it goes, goes down to like the 20% range, hmm. um, after which you, know, you get to that one, one, one and a half year mark, and then it starts steadily rising again um, to where, you know, uh, you know, after you, if you look all the way out to like the five-year mark, um, it's back above that 30% again. So we've kind of labeled this in the report as honeymoon phase, where there's just this... <laughs> A twelve to eighteen month period where fewer flaws are introduced um, before it kind of goes back to you know what, what we expect, which is like applications you know, code base grows, you introduce more flaws, right? Nobody's nobody's perfect, yeah. but that was very interesting for us to see that it didn't it didn't correlate with the with the code base growth. Any insights as to why that might be? Yeah, it's a good question um, as to why this is happening. You know, we have the data that, that we can see what's happening, and we have to kind of make guesses about about why that's happening. Uh, one of the reasons, I think, uh, is that you have uh, a certain amount of turnover with developers on a team. Uh, as the application gets more mature, as some developers move on to other projects, they may take some institutional knowledge with them about how that code base works. Um, also, as the functionality grows, as new features grow, you may, let's say you're adding new integrations to, um, uh, to, to the application. Um, these are things that uh, increase the surface area. They increase the, the you know the connections and the code base, and these are all things that you know somebody new that may join the project. Um, you know they may not they may not know how everything fits together, and so they may end up introducing um, some flaws because they just you know they don't know about security measures that are in place or the ones that they need to take or so on. Um, but there are there are any number of reasons that I think this could happen. Software is complex, um, and that's that's. That's kind of my my initial guesses as to why why we we might be seeing that pattern. Yeah, you know, I guess it's safe to say that not all flaws are created equal. Is there any uh, information that you are tracking here as to the severity of flaws? Yeah, we um, 
we look at not only the different flaw categories, but also um, as applications are introducing new flaws, are they flaws that are you know important ones? Are they in the OWASP top ten, which is the most you know ten ten uh, most common categories that affect web applications, or are they in the CWE top twenty five, which is another um, another taxonomy there? Uh, and when you look at you know are they introducing high severity flaws? You know those are actually a lot less prevalent than flaws in general, which is what you would hope, right? It tells you that developers and development teams are at least focusing on the right things. Um, it's hard to kind of prevent everything from creeping in, but at least there's some effort being being paid to to make sure that developers understand about the ones that are going to be the most impactful, the most security impacting to their applications. So yeah, that's a good trend. Yeah. Well, based on the information that you all have gathered here, what are your recommendations then for folks who are in this world day to day? Any words of wisdom? Yeah, absolutely. When we go back to that flaw introduction um, thing, we also didn't just look at you know what's the overall rate, but we looked at the various factors that influence that rate. So you start with like a base rate of about twenty-seven percent. You found that we found that uh, there's about a twenty-seven percent chance that an application will introduce one or more new flaws every month. But there are factors that can bump that number up or down, um, so they can make it less likely that you would introduce new flaws. And 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 uh, if you did introduce new flaws, you could even reduce the number of flaws that you would introduce. And so those factors really hinged around automation. If you were scanning uh, via the API using, you know, using the APIs and automation rather than you know, relying on a human to remember to do a scan and go upload it and so on, um, you actually reduce the probability of, of new flaws and the volume of new flaws. If you conducted, uh, if your developers were taking trainings, interactive trainings, so if on your application team you had at least 10 trainings completed, that actually reduced the probability that new flaws would be introduced. And so these are additive also. So if you're doing like multiple of these good behaviors, you know, you're, you're putting yourself in a much, much better uh, position. So we did see, and we've seen this before, but we've never, we've never looked at it in terms of flow introduction. We've looked at it more in terms of security debt. But all these factors um, around, and these are, these are things you see in DevOps a lot, right? Automation, building these good practices into the tool chain so that they just become a matter of, of hygiene as opposed to something that you have to remember to do. So all this, you know, all this automation and training uh, does pay off and it results in fewer flaws coming into the application, which means fewer flaws that you have to deal with later. So those are things that we would recommend that people get on top of. That's Chris Ng from Veracode. And joining me once again is Johannes Ulrich. He is the Dean of Research at the Sands Technology Institute and also the host of the ICS Stormcast podcast. Johannes, it's always great to welcome you back. Thanks for being and having me here. <laughs> well, I want to touch base with you today on some research that you shared with us recently. You all are tracking some of the fallout from the Silicon Valley Bank run and implosion and the cybersecurity aspects of that. What can you share with us today? Yeah, so basically what happened here is after all this uncertainty on Friday where the big news came out that the 
Silicon Valley Bank is going to be taken over by the government and you may not get your money back. Uh, we saw a large number, relatively large number of new domains being registered that uh, basically used SVB as part of their name, that acronym for Silicon Valley Bank. Some of them looked uh, more suspicious than others. Uh, for example, svb-login.com or login-svb.com were two domain names that we particularly uh, took a look at. But uh, then also some uh, domain names that well look more like, uh, for example, attracting clients for lawsuits or uh, in one case even svb-laid-off-gifts.com and <laughs> things <laughs> like that. Uh, so some of them fairly simple money-making schemes, others uh, probably a little bit more nefarious. The problem with an event like uh, this SVP uh, takeover is that, of course, over that weekend, there was an awful lot of uncertainty. Uh, how are you going to communicate with the bank? Uh, how are you going to get your money back? How much money are you going to get back? And uh, that is really ripe for fraud. We did then on Monday also uh, see reports of uh, SVP customers trying to update their account information. So hmm. you may have received an email if uh, you had, uh, if you're a customer of a company that uh, used SVB, but they told you, hey, uh, uh, SVB, as you hear, went under. Uh, we are now using a different bank. Here are our new uh, bank details. We haven't seen any abuse of this yet, but these type of emails, they're essentially what you usually find with business email compromise. When an attacker is breaking to an email system, waiting for the right email, and then replying with just that kind of information. So this really allowed for mass business email compromise, which out actually compromising your business email. I suppose it's worth mentioning here that in all of this, there are a lot of people who understandably would be in a heightened emotional state. Exactly. So that entire urgency and... Uh, once the adrenaline kicks in here, you may not really think as clearly as you're supposed to. Uh, so uh, that uh, really helps the fraudsters uh, as much as it hurts uh, the, the good people you're trying to defend. So what are you recommending here? I mean, should, should we be putting filters in place to look for that SVB phrase? Or how do we protect ourselves from these things? Well, uh, in part, vendors already have taken care of this. Uh, so uh, at this point, uh, many of these domains, if you're pulling them up in your browser, they'll be blocked uh, because uh, they're considered malicious, uh, if they are malicious. The other thing, of course, is just to use it as education for your users. Uh, train them not to sort of fall for social engineering, uh, to let their guard down and not follow procedure, for example, for account updates. It's hardly ever critical if a payment isn't going through one particular day if it waits another day or so. So uh, it's better than losing a ton of money uh, to some fraudster with uh, little recourse to get the money back again. That's a great point of using something like this high profile where uh, you know, there's broader knowledge of it to, to use it as a teaching moment. Correct. And you know, that way, you know, everybody's already kind of aware of it. They may have seen some of these emails and such uh, in their own inbox. So using it as a teaching moment, I, I wouldn't use it like as a 
fishing test. Uh, that may be a little <laughs> bit too much, uh, right. but uh, just as part of your awareness newsletter, or if you're talking uh, to your accounting staff, in particular, you know, people that may receive uh, business email compromise style emails, say, hey, you know, we, we keep talking about this. This is just one of these events uh, you have to be aware of and you have to be careful about. Talk to us. Let us know if you're seeing a suspicious email. Rather report one too many than uh, not enough. I'm curious, can you give us some insights, you know, you and your colleagues there at SANS when you're tracking this sort of thing, what sort of tools are you using to keep an eye on these domain registrations? How do you go about that? Yeah, we, we have a couple tools that uh, we sort of use for that. Uh, first of all, for some of the top-level domains, uh, you can uh, get a daily zone files, as they call them, basically a list of all the registered domains and figure out which ones are new. Another tool uh, we find uh, quite helpful is something called certificate transparency. Uh, whenever you register a certificate for a domain for a host name, uh, it's being published in certificate transparency logs. So we look in those logs. Uh, because these days, uh, even phishing sites use TLS and register certificates as a result. Or even if you go to your average registrar, they often set you up with like a little parked domain page. They register automatically in certificate for that parked domain page. So uh, that's how we get the information. We also uh, make it available if you don't want to parse it yourself uh, via an API that we offer on the Internet Storms on our website. So you can even go back a couple of years now, I think, because if you started doing that and basically search for domain names for simple keywords, just download the list and do something interesting with it yourself. Yeah. All right. Well, Johannes Ulrich, thanks so much for joining us. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. The Cyberwire podcast is a production of N2K Networks, proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. This episode was produced by Liz Irvin and senior producer Jennifer Iben. Our mixer is Trey Hester, with original music by Elliot Peltzman. The show was written by John Petrick. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Thank you. 
And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. 